The Canucks stun the Avalanche with a masterful performance in Colorado. It is the Canucks Hour on an hour later, but still here with you after a Canucks win on a Canucks game day. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who, of course, also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer Canucks win 3-1 against one of the best teams in the NHL, the high-octane Colorado Avalanche. Where on earth, where on earth did that performance from the Canucks come from last night? I don't know, because we haven't seen one really like that this year, unless it was against a team like Chicago. You know, we, we've seen some really good team-level defensive performances from the Canucks this season, I think. You know, I, I sort of think about that 3-1 victory right at the end of January, right before the All-Star break in Chicago. Um, you know, that's kind of it. Like, that's kind of all I got. Um, that was their best defensive performance of the year for me. Not not really close once you factor in it being on the road and it being against a really, really good, an elite offensive team in the Colorado Avalanche who averaged three, you know, point eight goals per game. The Canucks killed five penalties. They were the better team. And, you know, just think about it in your mind's eye. Think about the moment the Avs had a breakaway or a two-on-one where you were like, oh boy, here we go again. You can't because it didn't happen. None of those sort of butter knife chances that the Canucks have been surrendering, right, where they just get ventilated. And and when you think about the week leading in, up to this game, and you think about that Detroit game, which was one nothing, but they gave up chances by the bucket full. You think about that Calgary Flames game where it felt like the Flames could have been up 10-1 after the first period. And then you think about that Buffalo Sabres game where, like, Tage Thompson, Jeff Skinner, and Alex Tuck were just, you know, unguardable for the Canucks. And then all of a sudden, nothing from Nathan McKinnon and Miko Rantanen and top 10 NHL scorer Nazem Kadri. Like, nothing? Incredible. Honestly, I, I, I'm at a loss. It's just not the sort of win that we've seen the Canucks rack up under Boudreau. This was materially different. And different in a way that, you know, I, I think you got it. You, like, you can't not tip your hat. That was pretty close. They, they pitched a perfect game in the Mile High City. Uh, kudos to them. If they'd played like that 30 times this year, right, as opposed to that being maybe the second time I've seen it, you know, I'd be singing a very different tune on a day-to-day basis around this team, Jamie, right? Like, we just, that was a completely different type of Canucks victory. And if they can replicate that performance, you know, 10 times down the stretch, then this could actually get interesting. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And it really was the polar opposite in so many ways of the performances we saw last week against Detroit and against Buffalo at home in particular. And you could throw Calgary in there, although obviously that's a little different given the quality of Calgary's team because with the Detroit and the Buffalo losses, it wasn't just that they lost in really important, winnable games at home trying to keep their playoff dreams alive. It wasn't just that they lost, it was the way they lost and the way they looked doing it. And similarly against Colorado, it's not just that they pick up the two points. That's huge. Anytime you can go in and and pick up two points on the Avalanche in their home rink, that's a big accomplishment. But it wasn't just that they came away with the win. As you said, it was the way they looked doing it and the way they were able to perform doing it that really, you know, you almost had to shake your head in disbelief at what you were seeing. And 
the the thing that stands out to me, and it's related to what you're saying about their defensive form, performance overall, was just the idea of puck management, right? Because that has been such a talking point around this team, not just from people who watch and talk about the team, but from the team itself and from the coaching staff itself. Take better care of the puck. Make smart decisions. Don't self-inflict those odd man rushes and breakaways and gift them to the other team. We've seen the Canucks do a lot of that over the last couple of seasons. They didn't do that at all, at all, last night against the Avalanche. Per natural stat trick, the Avs only had four high-danger chances. Four at five-on-five in the whole game. And if you just look at overall scoring chances, the Canucks narrowly won that battle as well. And I think the most impressive thing about it was... They didn't just go in there and drop into a defensive shell, right? And say, okay, we're just going to sell out and do everything we can to slow down this team and hope for a fluke goal at the other end. I know it took them till the third period to get on the score sheet, but, you know, they were generating their fair chances through the first two periods, right? They were able to get their own offense while shutting down the avalanche for the most part and taking care of the puck. And it's that combination that really impresses me, right? They did not have to just completely retreat and give up any hope of generating their own scoring chances. They were able to tick both boxes against a team that is it's usually not very easy to do that. Well, and you got to remember, right, this is not a game. Hockey is not a game of raw totals, right? No one cares if you hold your opponent to one goal if you don't score any, right? Uh, no one cares if you score six goals if you surrender eight. It's a game of ratios, not raw, not raw numbers, right? And the way the Canucks played, they could have played that game ten times over. Uh, and so long as the form was the same, the Canucks win eight of them, seven of them. And that's that's the sort of win that this team hasn't had enough of. You know, you think about the the win over the Maple Leafs at home, for example, right? You play that game ten times, Toronto wins eight of ten of that, those, right? They they needed their their goalie to stop fifty shots. Um, there's been so many wins that look like that for the Canucks during this Boudreaux bump um, sort of period since the coaching change, which is kind of why I've been slow to adjust my opinion on the team despite the results because the the form, the process, that hasn't been there. Last night was all process, and you love to see it. Like, you love to see it, a great team-level performance, and sets up a nice start to a really difficult road trip, right? I mean, the, the, and one thing I want to talk about, Jamie, is and we talked about this the other, the other, I guess, Tuesday, right? I think we did it Monday night, but we ran it Tuesday. Where it was like, well, what what are we looking for over the rest of the season? And I was like, the playoff race still, yes. <laughs> right? We we do I, this market especially every time the Canucks lose, it's like, well, yeah, of course, Drance was right. They're terrible. They're no chance. And then every time they win, it's like, what do you mean they're not well constructed? What do you mean? And it's like, I, I'm not changing my opinion one way or the other <laughs> based on results. Like I think what I think about this team. I think they're not going to have enough to get it done. But if they can play like that, they'll have a shot. That's the only way to, in my view, win sustainably. And tonight's a really big test for that because they're not going to have their legs. Like, how much did Oliver Ekman Larson benefit, you think, oh from my having goodness. two games off? He, he looked like, completely like he was, different. Night and day. He looked like a totally different player. Um, you know, a, a rested team versus the team we're going to see tonight is a totally different beast. And this is a particularly tough road back-to-back for the, for the following reasons. One, the Avs game was a 7.30 start, so it ended late, right? Two, you lose an hour flying from Colorado in mountain time 
to St. Paul in central time, right? So you're, you're losing an hour right there anyway. And then also, and this is worth factoring in significantly, De- the Denver airport is further from downtown than just about any airport in the league, maybe except for Edmonton. Um, and, and I think Denver's further. Like, it's an extra hour on your travel time as opposed to any other city. So you have to factor that in, too. Like, there's no way the Canucks were in their beds before 2.33 last night. That's going to make for a tough, tough sledding in a game that would be a tough matchup anyway. And when you're a tired team, you know, one thing that you can do when you're good is fall back on your structure, right? You, you have something you can fall back on and lean on. And I think what part of what we saw on that homestand as the games got really dense and they played seven games in 12 days or whatever, right? Um, as, this, as the homestand went along, you know, I think that structure abandoned them because they don't have it. Like, it just, it's not there. There is no spine of steel to this team, even though there's enough talent, enough individual talent for guys like JT Miller or Elias Pettersson or Bo Horvat on occasion to take over a game. And because they've got, you know, Thatcher Demko in net most nights and he's capable of stealing any game on any day. And you put those together and you can go on these runs for half a season, but where your sort of lack of structure, the inability to consistently perform the way that this team did against the Avs really comes to bite you, I think, is when you get into a back-to-back situation or what we'll see against St. Louis where the Canucks will have played, uh, will be playing their fourth game in six nights on the road, right? I mean, see, four flights, long hours, four games in six nights. What can you fall back on in that situation? And I think so often the Canucks haven't had the structure they need Last night, at least, we saw a hint of it. And for me, for probably the first time this season against a really high-quality opponent. And I take a lot, like, I read a lot into that. I don't usually react a lot to a one win or one loss here or there. And I react not at all if it's the sort of win that you record while you get outshot by 15 or or when you score on 5 of 20 shots. Um, You know, those to me, those are games that happen over 82. But if you can play like that, then there's something there. Then there's something really interesting going on. And that is something that, you know, again, it's one. It's, it's, I've only seen it once. You know, a trick's not a trick if you can only do it once. Like, I can make a half-court shot. Like, cool. You know, take it 82 times and you, and you make it once. Like, that's not a trick. <laughs> that's, that's a guy hucking a ball at a net. <laughs> you know, a trick is a trick because it's repeatable. If the Canucks are able to repeat that type of performance and consistently play like that, then you're going to start to hear me change my tune a bit. Uh, the other thing that stood out to me about last night's game was we've talked a lot about the difficulties that very fast teams give the Canucks. I mean, we've seen that even a couple times last week, right? Against the Red Wings, against the Buffalo Sabres, who obviously have much less talent than the Colorado than the Colorado Avalanche do. The Avs, one of the fastest teams in the league. And you, the speed difference was definitely apparent. Like, you could watch that game, and even though Canucks, the Canucks were playing very well, you knew the Avalanche were the faster team. But I think because of that structure, you're talking about the way the Canucks were able to maintain their structure they really limited how much Colorado was able to exploit uh, their speed advantage and so okay hey you can be the slower team you can still find a way though to to play an effective game and limit how much the other team is burning you and as you say now that they have those tired legs and they're going to have the tired legs on the rest of the road trip that's going to be a big challenge right 
continue to maintain that structure, continue to maintain that level of, of discipline and puck management. And, you know, of course, the, uh, the the quote that was getting so much attention, and it's a great quote, was from J.T. Miller last night, who said that was the ballsiest effort of the season. And, you know, earlier in the week, you and I kind of had the discussion about the inconsistency and the slow starts and is it just about a lack of talent or is there a culture intangible thing going on there as well? And I, I would almost flip that conversation around about JT Miller's quote, right? Where, okay, maybe there was some sort of extra effort and extra courage shown by the Canucks in that one, but it was also just like technically their best hockey game. You know what I mean? It wasn't just about uh, whatever was going on from a mentality standpoint. It was just their best executed hockey game we've seen in a very long time. Now, having said that, I, I think all season, I think all yeah. season context factored in. That was their best game this season. For me, there's like second is not close because once you factor in the difficulty of the opponent, it, that's exactly I mean, that it. was that's exactly that was it. unlike. Yeah, that was unlike anything we've seen from this team, in my opinion. And, you know, good on them. Good on them. Do it again. Do but it again. It does. And I want to talk about some of the other positives uh, and get to a few from the game last night and get to a few listener questions as well. But I, I do have to say, and Riccio and I talked about this on the postgame show last night, too, as much as you want and you have to acknowledge and give plaudits and celebrate the performance of the Canucks last night. There is also going to be a part of you that's kind of shaking your head and saying, well, hold on a second. Where, where has that been? This season, right? And last season, where has that type of effort been? As you said, it's not even that, you know, it's been so rare and so difficult for them to get efforts like that. And it does, it does lead to a little bit of frustration that they're not able to see it. We're not able to see it more consistently. I mean, I'm sure the players feel some of that frustration as well. Now, I know we had a text from uh, Kyle from the island who said, the reason that performance was so much better was because the Canucks weren't feeling the trade deadline pressure anymore. I, I don't know. Maybe there's something to that, but that's also that's part that's and parcel of playing in the NHL. That, that's certainly a theory around the team following the game yesterday, right? Like that's one thing that was noted um, in some casual like conversations with my recorder away. You know, not not like off record, but not things that I was going to print. You know, just being like. What? what? <laughs> you know, like, hey, hey, what? <laughs> um, you know, I think that was probably part of it. I also wonder if all of a sudden you're facing these games at home that you should win. You're right ahead of the tech trade deadline. You're back in the playoff mix. Your your odds are at twenty five percent. It's like we can really get back in this. And there's pressure there. And all of a sudden you lose those games, and it's like, well, we're done. And there's pressure off in that area as well. I do think that that could have been a partial explanation maybe the team was playing loose for both of those reasons and I think that poses some really interesting questions too in terms of you know you need to be able to play when the chips are down right like you need to be able to start well when every team is trying to get off to the hot, hot start you need to be able to you know win the games you really have to win um, the abs for example like, yeah, they were probably playing. These games don't matter to them anymore, right? It's just stay healthy, get to the playoffs. Um, you know, that's the whole game for them at this point. For the Canucks, it's it's life or death. It's a scrap. So there's an asymmetry there in terms of, you know, intent, motivation, um, stakes. And, you know, it's important for a team, I think, to be able to perform when the stakes are equal, when, when the footing is equal. And I do think there's some really key questions that come up uh, you know from that 
uh, about this group and, and about what they can do. And, and hopefully they can continue to play the types of games that they did against the Avalanche long enough, string together enough of those that they get to play in a situation with equal stakes again this season. And, and very possible, right? I mean, you, you win tonight, you get one point tonight. Um, even if you don't and Dallas loses... You're you're probably facing that type of situation on Saturday, so let's uh you know let's sort of see how they can handle that. Let's we're we're still just learning a, a fair bit about this group, and you know that data point yesterday was so out of line with everything else we've seen that I, I think it deserves a different. You know, it's almost like it takes you back. It's like whoa, <laughs> yep. how, how do we how do we analyze that? And now I think we're going to see this game against Minnesota that needs to be viewed in context in the event that the Canucks have a letdown, right? Um, because of the difficulty of the schedule. And then they're facing that Dallas game, and that is going to be a game where we learn a lot about what this team is made of, in my view, particularly because both of those teams are clawing in sort of the same milieu in this wild card race. And even beyond, you know, being able to perform like that when you're playing a team that also has high stakes, the dynamic in those Buffalo and Detroit games was those games really, really mattered for the Canucks and not so much for the other team. And yet they were the team that lacked urgency, right? So you even you have to be able to do it in those types of games first and foremost consistently. And then you get into the, you know, as you said, this matchup against Dallas where both teams, uh, this matchup upcoming against Dallas where both teams will really be feeling the heat of the playoff race. Uh, Susan from North Van Texan, Jamie and Thomas, what did you think about Pedersen's game last night? Doing everything but score. His game was amazing. I think he should be a fixture on the Canucks PK. Get your thoughts in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. And Drancer, I got to say, I, I was doing the postgame show with Riccio last night, and you know we we frequently mention how engaged and intelligent and smart the fan base and our listenership is here. In Vancouver, and I last night to me was a great example of that because it was the most unanimously positive uh, text cohort about Elias Pettersson that I have seen all season. And it wasn't because he had an incredible, flashy, you know, three-point game or, you know, uh, scored a one-timer on the power play or anything like that. He had a great primary assist to set up Brock Besser. But over and over and over, what people were talking about was the impact he had defensively on the penalty kill as a two-way play driver. And that's what really stood out about Elias Pettersson. I mean, first of all, you know, uh, I was uh, the idiot uh, on the show yesterday saying, why on earth is Elias Pettersson playing on the wing? And then he goes out and uh, turns out a performance like that. I'm, I'm beginning to think that Bruce Boudreau might be pretty good at this NHL head coaching thing. But beyond the fact that it happened at wing, that to me really just, it, it was such an exhibition of all the things that made people fall in love with the upside of Elias Pettersson, right? That even if he doesn't ever project as an Art Ross Trophy winning player, he does so many things well other than just scoring, other than just producing on the ice when he's at his best. But you can see his potential to be, you know, a, a top forward on a Stanley Cup contending team. And I think Susan's exactly right. He had a fantastic game beyond just the primary assist to set up Besser. Everything else he was doing was really, really impressive last night. He was disruptive all game. There was a key sequence, and it was on the penalty kill, where the Wild tried, and it was there, or sorry, the Wild, the Colorado Avalanche tried a D-to-D pass on their second unit, and it was just this great stick and leap by Pedersen, and it knocked the puck out of the zone. And it's like, that's exactly the play. That's exactly the play that causes your opponent to have to regroup, right? To not get two shot attempts in the next 10 seconds. Um, and in a game where the margins are as fine as they were last night against an elite offensive team where you're, you know, 
cruising to a one goal lead plus an empty net, which is very different from a two goal win, right? Like there, there is a difference between those two types of wins in terms of, you know, how I analyze team quality anyway, um, clear victories versus a win. And that wasn't a clear victory for the Canucks last night. So that type of moment in the game is super high leverage. Uh, do I get a ding? Do I get a bell for, for high, super leverage? high leverage? <laughs> Favor? <laughs> Favor's not into it. No, Favor's not into it. <laughs> so, but he was great. He was a disruptive two-way force last night in, in a way that I especially like because I don't know that we're sure how healthy he is, right? Yep. And so the fact that he found a different way to influence the game means a lot to me. And we'll see if he can do it again tonight. We'll see if he can do it again this weekend in Dallas and then again early next week in St. Louis. And then again against St. Louis and Vegas twice. Uh, you know, they need that Pretty every tough. night. They need that every night. They need that every night. Everyone who played, like the way Myers and OEL played, they need that every night. Every night. You have to be able to repeat that performance. And tonight, you know, you're probably not going to be able to do all of that because you know, fatigue, back-to-back, on and on. But this team needs to play like that every night because that's what good teams do. They at least manage 60 games in form like that, you know? That's like that's the difference between really good teams and teams that aren't very good. You still lose 25 of those games, by the way, right? <laughs> like that's, that's hockey. But you need to be able to play like that consistently, and that's the, that's the test now. Like, we know they can do it. We know there's talented players on this team. Why, why have we not seen it? What, like, why did it take to game 66 of the season to see that from this team? You know, do it every night. They have to be, if they can do it every night, then I'm starting to take them seriously. But until then, you know, until then, that looks like an outlier to me. And that's at the core of why I've been so skeptical of this group in general, right? Is, is just the two-way IQ up and down the roster and the structure uh, hasn't been there enough. And then all of a sudden you see this Mona Lisa, just this brilliant team performance against Colorado of all teams with Halak in net after, you know, first time he didn't get chased midway through a game since what, January? And, you know, it's befuddling. It's, it's, it's really confusing how this team can have gone, can have gone from what they did at home against inferior opponents to putting in a performance like that on the road against maybe the best team in the league. It's maddening. It's honestly maddening to uh, to think about that. And so, you know, I, to, to them I say a, a tip of the cap, a perfect game played. Kudos. Well done. Now do it again. Do it again. Do it again a bunch of times uh, to, to keep pace and, and hopefully overtake some teams in this playoff race. And just to uh, to tie it back to Pedersen, and Susan from North Van's text there, and she mentioned specifically his work on the PK, which you highlighted as well. That has been, I think, kind of low key one of the most interesting in terms of what it mean, what it could mean for the future of the team. One of the most interesting develop developments for the Canucks under Bruce Boudreau was, is just exploring in kind of a full time capacity how Elias Pettersson can be used on the penalty kill. And I, I'm not sure you're ever going to want him to be your first choice, like first guy over the boards uh, taking the draw on, on a penalty kill just because he's going to play so many minutes in other situations as well. But to have him as a legitimate option that you feel really good about putting out there and getting results, if he can establish himself as that kind of player, you know, you just think about how can they, how can they squeeze every last bit of value out of a player like Elias Pettersson and his spot on the roster. And if he develops into a solid 
you know, dependable penalty killer, that is, I think, really, really important. Because then all of a sudden you're not constantly fretting that every bottom six player you bring in has to be an elite penalty killer because you have guys who are really good offensively in your top six that you feel confident that can do the job. And that could be very, very crucial uh, for this team going forward as they try to build a Stanley Cup contender. Lots more to talk about from last night. We mentioned Jaro Halak there in passing, but I want to dig in a little bit more to his performance and what it means for him, for the team as well. Plus, we will look ahead to the Canucks game tonight against the Minnesota Wild. Second half of a back-to-back on the road. Keep your thoughts coming in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. And also, don't forget, subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you leave us a five-star rating and review as well. Lots more coming up on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. It's befuddling. What do you mean? Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance here with you on another Canucks game day as they will take on the Minnesota Wild later this evening. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. 5 p.m. puck drop tonight in Minnesota. Of course, you'll be able to hear it all right here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Before we get to the game against Minnesota, a couple other things I wanted to touch on from last night. The win, 3-1 in Colorado. This one, unsigned text comes in. Who got the championship belt last night? I hope it was Halak. You're in it luck, was. because it sure was, Yaro Halak. Brad Hunt doling it out to the Canucks. Uh, much maligned backup goalie. Drancer, I think the, the reaction... Sorry, can we give can we give daps to the way that Brad Hunt handed that over? I mean, Brad Brad Hunt is just... He's the best. Like, he, he's, Hunt, uh, he's incredible. Hunt be the official belt giver. <laughs> yes. Like, it was incredible. He crushed it. He um he's just a delight. He really is. I mean, we don't want to. I don't want to get on a, a just a Brad Hunt del- being a delight tangent here, although we easily could. But Why? it's just everything Why? he does is just infused with joy and and fun and enthusiasm. It's great. He uh, he's the best. And uh, yeah, I mean, he I I never want to see anyone else hand out the belt ever. I was so fired up. <laughs> I was so fired up. Like I don't even care. I don't even have a pulse when it comes to this sort of stuff. And I'm watching that. I'm like, let's go, Brad Hunt. <laughs> All right. Let's run through a wall. Let's do it. Also, can we talk really quickly? I just like I'll be at XL Energy Center tonight, and you know, pinch myself every day that I get to watch hockey for a living. Right? It's awesome, and I love being back on the road. And yet, tonight is like the perfect night to be at a local sports bar with ten TVs. It's true. Like I would love to have five different games with Western Conference playoff implications on the TV. Plus Canada, um, you know, going for a, a chance to seal their first ever World Cup berth in my lifetime. Plus NCAA basketball. <laughs> uh, some 16. really good matchups tonight. It's incredible. Like tonight is one of the best sports nights of the year. It's awesome. It sets up well uh, as well with the uh, the earlier puck drop for the Canucks because I don't, I don't think Canada gets going until 7, right? So you get almost the full Canucks game in. Uh, then you can start diverting your attention between the two. And then, as you said, if, if there's ever a commercial break where you're left wanting, you can always flip over to the Sweet 16. So, yeah, not bad. Uh, no. Not bad whatsoever. Incredible. But 
back to uh, Yara Halak. Yes, he did get the championship belt. And I, I think the reaction from Canucks fans, if I could sum it up, at least from what I saw when they found out that Yara Halak was going to start last night against the Colorado Avalanche, it wasn't anger or frustration. I would say resignation. That was kind of the reaction. Like, okay, uh, we'll chalk this one up as a loss, and and hopefully Demko can steal one in Minnesota, and they can still find a way to win three out of four on the road. And for like, I I don't know if if what Yaro Halak, if the fact that he played well and got the win for the team last night, I don't know if it has implications for the Canucks for the rest of this season. I mean, I certainly don't think. Obviously, at this point, he's going to be in the backup picture next year or anything. So I don't know what it means long term for the Canucks, but I do know. Must have felt really, really good, really good for Yaro Halak to have that performance and get that win last night. No question. And, I mean, we're talking about a guy who has been one of the most consistent puck stoppers in the NHL dating back a decade. I know he's never been an elite starter, but he's just been consistently above average for 12 years. (laughs) Like an incredible length of time. And... Obviously, the season has been challenging. No question. He wants to play more. He's always played more. Um, you know, I think the speculation has been tough for him, for sure. And, you know, a, a variety of things blew up, like little things. Like, I, I, you know, he stopped sitting on the Canucks bench because he preferred to watch games in the tunnel, which is no problem at all. And, you know, I tweeted about it and it became a news story in Slovakia about how he was unhappy. And it's just like, you know, there's nothing. I mean, this wasn't talked about. It didn't register locally. There was no there there. Like, it was truly unfounded. But, I mean, it's just like everything this guy's done is turned into something. Some conversation, some talking point. And, you know, then he has those two brutal starts uh, you know, one at home against the Islanders, one on the road against the New Jersey Devils. Maybe just don't play Halak against New York area teams. Right? That might be it's just that might be a partial solution. Just the tri-state area that really <laughs> gives them trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but to bounce back to put in a performance like that. Now he didn't have to steal the game, and he didn't. He just had to be good, and he was really good. He gave the Canucks every chance to win that game with the with the solid way they played in front of him. That's all you can ever ask from your backup. Um, you know, he's basically had two bad games now. Like, you know, we're, we're sort of back in a world where we can look at Halak's season and say, aside from two games, he's been full value for this team. Now, full value in terms of his contributions, not full value in terms of his contract and the bizarre structure that the Canucks went with for it, because that has been a, a, a tra- I mean, that's been a disaster for this team and, and will continue to be a problem for them to navigate this offseason. But he's certainly contributed everything you could have hoped for from Halak this season. Quickly on the game last night, another text in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, what did you guys think about the refs and the hit on Highmore specifically? Obviously, the refs, major talking point last night. And I didn't have a problem with the no call with the hit on Highmore. But I did think in other ways, the referees did not have a particularly strong performance last night. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, rinse and repeat. But the <laughs> the... So the, the there's two calls that I really didn't like from a Canucks perspective. The first was I, I thought it was outrageous that Andrew Cogliano and Oliver Ekman Larson got offsetting minors after Ekman Larson jumped in on Cogliano when he clearly hung a knee 
on Vasily Podkolzin. That's a really dangerous play that needs to be penalized in a, you know above and beyond a, a roughing penalty because you know Oliver Ekman Larson jumped him. Um, if he did nothing wrong, he shouldn't get a penalty, and he did do something wrong, and he should have been penalized for that. And if you're going to give him a penalty for the melee, he should get an extra one for the knee. Uh, for me, I mean that one's that's open shut. That's a dangerous play needs to be penalized. The fact that it wasn't called is you know. Uh, unacceptable to me. I thought that was a, a really bad call. I also didn't like the fact that Quinn Hughes draws the first play. It's a uh, first penalty of the game. It's cross-checking penalty against uh, Nathan McKinnon in which he, he goes down after he is cross-checked behind the play while going for a change uh, by McKinnon. And then he gets two really soft slashing penalties thereafter. And that to me is like shades of you know, I, I don't want to say what it was. Like, I don't know. I don't know what it was, but it always looks suspicious to me when you have that fact pattern. Guy draws first penalty, gets two soft ones in quick succession thereafter. That always looks to me, um, you know, like um, it, the optics of it for me are uh, a ref is leveling it up or, or thinking that they shouldn't have called the first penalty. And I hate that. That always just optically feels wrong. And and I, it did in the game last night. A lot of the other penalties. I thought were like, like I didn't have a problem with. I I, th- I think the rule forty eight violation, like no question, uh, that Matthew Highmore was hit in the head. I think the NHL should probably adopt a pretty similar standard for hits to the head as as they have for high sticks, which is you know the onus should be on the hitter to avoid contact with the head, but it's not right. the The rule forty eight violation, one of the factors that referees must take account um, into account in assessing a rule forty eight violation penalty is the position of the player getting hit. Matthew Highmore was low when he was hit by, um, it was McDermott, right? Curtis McDermott? Yes, exactly. That's what I remember in my head. It was. It was McDermott. He was low, so although it was a high hit on Highmore, it wasn't a high hit in sort of the context of, you know, his body position. And so I, I at least understood it. I, I don't like the NHL standard for that. I think they need to be more serious about head hits and, and create an environment where the onus is on the hitter to pull up if there's any doubt. Um, but with the way the rule is written, I, I didn't have a huge problem with that. And then the other thing I'd note is, like, Avs fans were calling suck <laughs> in the building Amazing. For, lar- for large segments of the second period. And I didn't think they were without cause before the penalties really started to go against Vancouver because Vancouver was, you know, playing a good defensive game. And part of playing a good defensive game is, you know, uh, subscribing to and committing to the dark art of fouling without fouling, right? Uh, Without getting called. Uh, You remember the Legion of Booms whole thing was like, we foul eight times a play. So good luck, you know, Mm -hmm. we're Mm -hmm. daring the refs to call it. The Canucks defended like that a little bit. I'm not saying that to take a shot at them by any means. I'm, I'm giving them credit because, um, you know, I thought the calls that went against them were probably not the ones they should have got, including one really key moment late in the second period where I thought it was a very, very obvious uh, interference penalty on Yuho Lamico that absolutely should have been called because it negated a scoring chance and would have put the Canucks down five on three. Um, you know, there were a lot of sequences like that that I thought the Canucks had some liberty with. So I didn't, I didn't think the refereeing was good at all. Um, you know, I don't think the Canucks were happy about it. I know that, uh, I know that Bruce Boudreaux's too savvy to uh, explicitly say it. I'm sure he's been fined one too many times to want to get fined again, uh, especially after a win. But, you know, no question, the officiating was, was not great last night. 
So, moving ahead to tonight's matchup with the Minnesota Wild. I mean, this is a big, big night for the Canucks in the playoff race. Obviously, to see if they can pick up another two points against the Wild. But you look at the out-of-town scoreboard as well. Uh, one matchup that might be favorable from a Canucks perspective, Dallas is on the road against the Carolina Hurricanes. Obviously, not an easy matchup whatsoever for Dallas. Elsewhere, the Jets hosting the Senators, the Oilers hosting the Sharks, and Vegas in uh, Evgeny Dadanov's re-debut. I guess, with the team host the Nashville Predators. So Canucks will be keeping a close eye. Canucks fans will be keeping a close eye on the out-of-town scoreboard. But even setting aside the playoff chase for the Canucks transfer, no shortage of interesting storylines when the team visits the Wild tonight. Bruce Boudreaux, of course, was most recently the coach of the Minnesota Wild before he was the coach of the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, it could be the debut of Marc-Andre Fleury for the Minnesota Wild as well after he came over from the trade deadline. And one player I want to highlight who we haven't talked about yet, even though he scored a, a very, very pretty goal last night and I thought had a Howitzer. strong game, is Brock Besser returning to his home state of Minnesota where he know we know he always loves to play. Uh, Horvat and Pedersen, I thought, both got a lot of attention for what they did on that line last night. But Besser, beyond just the goal, which looked incredible, I mean, that's that's what you want to see from Brock Besser. That's the kind of thing that can set him apart. I thought he had a strong game last night. I'm curious to see what he does for a follow-up in his home state of Minnesota as well. Yeah, and, you know, it's too bad that the Canucks are here for such a short period of time, right? It's not a lot of time for Besser to get home and considering Besser's well-publicized family situation, right? You, you always hope that he'd have an extra day or an extra day or two, right? The stakes of a homecoming for Besser are higher than they are for a, a lot of players in, in the ordinary course. Um, he definitely loves playing here. I'm sure he loved getting a chance to spend some time with family today. Uh, you certainly hope he, he was able to put in some hours. So um, will be will be awesome for him to get a chance to to catch up with Duke and, and his family while he's here. Yeah, it's it's awesome for for Brock Besser, and you hope he can uh, he can follow up that performance last night with another strong one against the Wild. The the Bruce Boudreaux return is interesting as well, and I know your athletic colleague Michael Russo had a really interesting feature up today uh, that fans can read, and you just kind of go through it and the the stats about. Bruce Boudreaux's coaching record in his NHL career and we always I, I always think of Boudreaux as you know the team the guy leading those those run and gun high octane Washington Capitals teams then of course he had a lot of really successful Anaheim Ducks teams but I think sometimes we forget just how good his Minnesota Wild teams were as well in in, in the time he was there and it's it just kind of every time you dig into his stats a little bit more in his journey through the NHL, he's been so good, so good at every stop of his head co- head coaching career. And again, I think sometimes we we almost forget about the wild tenure in there, but it was pretty impressive in a lot of ways too. He is personally magnetized to making the playoffs. It is honestly a stunning record. Uh, he is probably, if not the greatest, then he's the second greatest regular season coach in the history of the NHL. And the fact that he keeps coming to teams that are, like, bad, and then they crush it the rest of the way through a season, it's inexplicable. Honestly, it's inexplicable. Um, there's something There's something about Bruce. And, you know, he, uh, he was in the media room a little bit earlier before his availability, just because I think it was a late flight and he was eager to get it done. And so, you know, I, I was able to see him before his availability sort of interact with the players when they were done. 
you know, and, and, and talking to JT Miller and just being like, you know, that right there, like, we're so close, like, da da da, just like firing up JT after he had done his availability. And then as Yarrow walked by him, right, just shaking his hand and being like, I'm so proud of you. And there's just this authenticity that sort of resonates there. I wonder how much of it's just pure force of personality in, in Boudreaux's case, particularly because I don't see a lot of the same. I don't. I don't see a lot of like, you know, super detailed focus on matchups. Um, you know, this is a guy who clearly prefers veteran players. I think you've seen a lot of young Canucks players have their sort of ice time diminish. Um, but I think there's, he, he's one of those guys who knows a couple of big things and those seem to matter a ton in terms of him being able to drive success for his employers. Uh, pretty, pretty impressive what he's managed to accomplish here. Yeah, it is. The, calling it force of personality is really interesting because that can take you a long way. Right. And I think that's what you see in his ability to form those connections. I and mean, even in the, the story from your colleague, Michael Russo, which I referenced and I read before the show, you know, there's a story about the connection that he was able to form with Kevin Fiala, despite a rocky start to that relationship, right? Where Boudreaux scratched Fiala a couple of times and they didn't always see eye to eye, but by the end of it, and by the time Boudreaux was let go, Fiala had come to really respect Boudreaux and, and really kind of acknowledge what he did to help him learn the NHL game. And I think, Obviously, you have to be extremely proficient at all the technical aspects as well and the X's and the O's and the systems and all of that. And you have to be disciplined and detail-oriented. But that ability to forge those relationships, earn that trust, earn that buy-in from your players, it's so incredibly important as well. And, and we've seen that already in a short time uh, here with Bruce Boudreau in Vancouver. Looking specifically at this – sorry, go ahead, Chancer. No, no, no. I was just going to do, I was just going to do, should we do the quick playoff race? Yes. Um, should we do the quick playoff race update? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So the, the key games to look for, right? The Winnipeg Jets are playing the Ottawa Senators, both teams on equal rest. Jets <laughs> the at Jets home. have an easy opponent. Yes. The Jets have an easy opponent. And that's, that's a, a very favorable matchup for Winnipeg. The Dallas Stars and the Carolina Hurricanes, it's not just that they're playing one of the best teams in the league. They're also playing their fourth game in six nights. So I would expect that this is not one of the games in hand that Dallas is going to use <laughs> in, in an effective way. But it's hockey. We all know no matter how lopsided a game gets, you still have a 25% chance of winning even if you're terrible, right? Um, the, the, the Habs are a 25% shot at, at, beating, the, at the, beating the Panthers. So... Tonight, for example, I was just daring Faber to ding, but he's just like, the <laughs> there he goes. He got it. He got it. You've got the Canucks and, and Cam Talbot Canucks on zero days rest. That's a that's a tough one. Wild haven't played since what, Monday? So, um, you know, that's a pretty big edge for a big physical team that I think is a really tough matchup for Vancouver tonight. Uh, we'll see. And then you've got the Edmonton Oilers. And that's a really interesting one, too, because the Oilers are the tired team here. And I think we're going to see Capo Kakinen's Sharks debut. So, um, you know, who knows? Who knows? I'd say the Oilers probably find a way to get it done. But um, we'll see. Miko Koskinen's always an adventure. <laughs> and, then, and, then you've got, and then you've got Vegas and Nashville. Uh, UC Saros versus, you know, a, a Vegas team that's playing well but can't buy a save. And they're also playing their third and four nights. So, you know... The Canucks are in really tough tonight is the bad news. The good news is that other than Winnipeg, so is everyone else. 
to a certain extent, yes. I mean, the Oilers, even with even with Koskinen in that, it's it's still them at home against the Sharks. But, I, but they're I t- tired. Yeah, they're tired. I, I take a tired your point. game. And I will say, yeah. with with the Golden Knights, I mean, not only can they not buy a save, they're also at the center of one of the most bizarre NHL storylines in recent memory right now with the Evgeny Dadanov uh, saga, and who knows how that oh. will or will not impact their team. But I'm certainly totally. enjoying and- watching it. I'll tell you that much. It's it's funny to me. It's all well, for, to, to everyone. It's also a saga that underlines one of the Vegas Golden Knights sort of problems here, right? Which is that they've been completely disloyal to, to the players that made their, you know, birth season such a such a success, right? Not that Dadnov's one of them, but there is a sense of like fungibility for everybody on that roster, right? They've always they're always star hunting. I love the way that they manage their roster, to be totally honest with you. I think it, the league would be more fun if everyone went out and acquired star players and took big swings the way the Vegas Golden Knights do. It would be more like the NFL and the NBA, which I, I, I mean, I think those off-season news cycles. Like, did you hear Tyreek Hill today? Yeah. It's the, the the comment about just like when someone gives you a truckload of money, like yeah. you got to take it. It's like you've never heard an NHL player say anything like that. And if they did, the code would be furious. Um but it's it's good. Like it's, I think that stuff is good for the entertainment value, the off season entertainment value of the leagues. So I, I I'm not even blasting Vegas, but I do think the Dadnov thing underlines you know the way that this team moves on and disposes of players. Um, and and you know you sort of wonder as you look through the vibes around this Golden Knights team and and what's shaping up to be should it end with Vegas not being in the playoffs, you know a pretty epic collapse. Um, I mean, you you sort of wonder if that might be one of the intangible factors that we sort of revisit and discuss at length following this season. Well, the other thing with Vegas, looking beyond this year, is, you know, they're obviously in a world of trouble, both in the standings and from a salary cap perspective right now for the remainder of this regular season. And it remains to be seen how they'll navigate that. But, man, they're going to be in a world of trouble going into next year, too. And the vultures are going to start circling, or they probably already are circling around the Vegas Golden Knights, trying to figure out how they can get the most out of this situation, right? And we've heard the speculation, you know, could Arizona ask for the moon to take Dadanov? And and obviously he wouldn't be able to play for them, but they don't care because they're not going anywhere anyways. I think that's going to be interesting. But even in the offseason, there's going to be a lot of teams calling about some of the you know, not not the Mark Stones and the Jack Eichels, but the and the Alex Petrangelos, but the next tier below that of still really good Vegas players because they're going to have to move some salary out. Otherwise, they're they're not going to be able to field a a full team next year, given how they've set themselves up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work to do, without question. Um, just want to point our listeners to I've I've got a new feature up on Travis Dermott opens up on being traded from the Leafs and, and rebuilding his confidence with the Canucks. Thought he had a nice debut yesterday, really quiet, um, you know, played 15-ish minutes, so third-pair deployment. Uh, didn't play a shift in the final five minutes of the game uh, uh, until, at least until the it was a two-goal game again, but uh, was used pretty regularly in the final ten. Uh, this is a player who just is hungry for an opportunity to play every day and keep building his game. The Canucks believe that there's maybe some top four upside there despite his relatively advanced age they they're betting on the athleticism they're betting on the pedigree um i thought he made a strong start 
to his Canucks tenure against the Avalanche, and I'm curious to see how he gets used tonight, particularly now that the Canucks are playing their second leg of a back-to-back. Quiet, good word for it. I thought Bruce Boudreau really eased him in uh, with some pretty gentle minutes, as you said, third-pairing minutes. I I did notice he played up over three and a half minutes on the penalty kill, which is interesting. And As as he tries to carve a role in this team going forward, I think that's going to be an important part of it. But yeah, very curious to see Uh, If and how Dermott's role expands starting tonight on the blue line for the Canucks, of course, you'll be able to hear all of the action for the Vancouver Canucks right here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Canucks Central with Sachi Arshaw and Dan Riccio is coming up next. Bick and Randeep will have your intermission and post-game coverage. Drancer and I back tomorrow again at 1 o'clock. Enjoy the Canucks game tonight. Uh, Enjoy Soccer Canada as well if you get a chance to watch that. We will talk to you tomorrow. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. There's something about Bruce.